Isaiah 44 this evening. No surprise there. Easy chapters to love because of how Isaiah gives us these truths. Kind of reverse from Jeremiah. Jeremiah in the first chapters, man, it's just amazing. And then you get to those deeper chapters and it gets heavy duty. Isaiah is the other way around. The Godmakers Club. That's the title for this evening's message. And hopefully, you know, when I used to buy uh, books on sermons, almost all of the guys, they were long dead. But I really enjoyed the titles of the sermons. Um, it, It was just so educational and so much doctrine just in the titles. So uh, I hope you don't uh, dismiss as that says, just filler. Hopefully a pastor puts some work into understanding which direction uh, it's going to go in his time in the pulpit. Because it can go in a lot of directions. Next week I could do Isaiah 44 again, I'm not, and just go in a different direction. So the Godmakers Club, and you younger Christians, I hope this, these things are not being wasted on you. Don't be distracted by things you don't understand. Lock on to the things you do get and build on those things. Well, man did not create God. God created man. And there are people that will say, well, God is created in the minds of people. It's the opposite. But it's an old move of Satan that always works uh, on those who, who... who like it, like the idea that there is no God or that they can make up things about God. It's odd that men will deny God, but they can't deny evil. And you think they would work through that a little bit more. Well, before I was a believer, I didn't work through it. And I want to remember that as I, my heart longs for so many souls to be saved. God names the source of evil. We know the person of Satan, God's enemy and our enemy. He's God's enemy in the sense that he goes against everything God wants. And uh, he is a deceiver. And men scoff at that. Men scoff at the source of evil. Satan's lies about God, they show up in idolatry. Uh, they show up in atheism, so-called atheism. And I hope that whenever the subject of atheism comes up for us, that we point out to the unbeliever, perhaps a believer, who needs to understand there really is no such thing as an atheist. I, I don't believe in atheists. I think they're lying. I think they're not honest with themselves. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. I happen to agree with that. Um, you can't escape it. Though you can... You can play dress up and pretend that God is not there, but you're still stuck with having to account for everything. And a person's reason, it just defies, uh, just absolutely dismissing these things. So I don't believe in atheists, and I I know God does not either. But Satan, of course, he plays that card. Uh, They're part of the God-makers club also. So let's look at verse 1. Yet hear me now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Behind these words, a great amount of love of God. But he is restricted by free will, the free will of sinners. They do not have to accept him. Nor the nation has this calling. 
No nation has ever had so many prophecies and promises about their present and their future history. It is unprecedented. How many prophecies deal with Israel's past history in the scriptures? And then how many more? And how many are being fulfilled right in front of our eyes? Amos, the prophet, wrote, You only, God speaking through the prophet to the Jewish people, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for your, all your iniquities. Well, we're going to keep that in mind because no other people have been dealt with by God, good and bad, like the Jewish people as a nation. The church is really made up of the righteous, independent of ethnicity. Uh, None have uh, sustained undeserved attention like Israel. And so you can scoff at the Bible all you want. You still have to account for Israel. And then you have to account for all the prophecies concerning Israel. Uh, And you can, it's impossible to dismiss any logical approach to it will be cornered if it persists in trying to uh, refute these, these things from Scripture. Uh, no other nation has suffered for their stiff-necked behavior as Israel. The ones that uh, other nations have suffered before their stiff-neckedness, but they're gone, many of them. Uh, Egypt has suffered, for example. They're not gone, they're here, but the Canaanites are gone. The Philistines are gone. And those who try to say that the, the Arabs in Israel are descendants of the Philistines are lying. Uh, They most certainly are not. They're Arabs from Jordan, the same type of Arabs there. Anyway, God made it clear to the Jews that they did not deserve this status, but it, it was linked to the faith of their fathers. Deuteronomy 9, It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, Yahweh your God drives them out before you, and that he may fulfill the word which Yahweh swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, understand that Yahweh your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are stiff-necked people. So, typical of God, true all the time. And uh, it, it doesn't mean that, oh, you're worse than everybody else. It just means don't go thinking you're better than everybody else. You have an assignment. You have been chosen. Well, this is true of the Christian. You have assignments. You're, you have a role to play in creation as a Christian. Whether you opt out or not is up to you. Many of the Jews opted out. Many others did not. Thank God for the ones that did not. Men like Isaiah and Jared the Prophets, for, for example. So to whomsoever much is given, much is required. It is a principle given to us by God. It is applicable to a nation. It is applicable to an individual. So now the second verse, the prophet says, Thus says Yahweh, who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurim, whom I have chosen. Now the Jews reading this, they're they're following it. There's there's no need for so many explanations as we might, but here's one. 
for those, most of you know this, but maybe there's someone who doesn't. When, when we come to the word in the Old Testament, particularly Lord, if it is all in all caps, some publishers opt to italicize the word. It is the covenant name of God between the Jew and the, and the Jewish people. And it is believed to be pronounced Yahweh. There's an outside chance it's pronounced Jehovah or Yahovah. It, the pronunciation is secondary. The understanding is that when we come to that name in the scripture, uh, Lord, in all caps, that is signaling to the reader that it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he has been dealing with the Jewish people, and he has all people in mind. Thus, the Jews were to be a light to the Gentiles, and Jesus will bring that. We'll get to a verse from Jesus about that, too. So it's not a little thing, and that's why I prefer to use the um, presumed proper pronunciation that it is Yahweh. We've lost the pronunciation because of the scribes, thinking the name was too sacred to spell out completely. Well, as we covered last session, with leadership comes rights of lordship. And with lordship, or rights of ownership, and then with ownership comes lordship. And God is exercising these things. Israel, the nation, is not a natural occurrence. Is that lost on some of you youth? Do you, do you miss that? Or you, let me help you with that a little bit. The nation of Israel, there's no way to explain her existence except it is supernatural. There's nothing like Israel. No nation has been knocked out of their homeland for 2,000 years, retained their culture as a nation without a land, and then been put back into their land. It is, and so hated by everybody. For what? There are other nations that have done far worse. Israel has not invaded anyone's territory. Other nations have. It is a big deal. It is not a natural occurrence. If it were, Israel would have been gone with the Philistines, especially with all the hatred she's had from all her neighbors. And so Isaiah, he's reminding the Jews of their origins when he brings up the name Jacob, uh, the, who became the name changed to Israel. But when he says Jeshurim, I have, cho I have chosen, it's a descript term, and it is also a term of endearment. It is sort of a pet name. It means the righteous, uh, the righteous one, or the upright one. And this is what God wanted Israel to be. Uh, it's too bad we don't give nicknames anymore, not uh, benevolent nicknames. I don't, I don't mean insulting names. Here comes Loghead. Uh, that's not a good one. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it's just nice when you have people, you, you know, something, something in their character stands out and they sort of pick up a nickname and it's... it's can't force it. But anyway, uh, Jeshurim, in contrast to Jacob, Jacob means heel catcher, or basically the cheater, the little rascal. And innocent enough at birth, in life, as he matured, he became quite the, um, the uh, opportunist. If, if, if you would. And so you have this, Jacob was his name. God changed his name from heel catcher because when he was born and they had the two, his, he was a twin to Esau and they had the two boys there and he reaches out and he grabs his brother's heel and, and they give him that name. Well, you little heel catcher, you. And it uh, had other meanings with the word. Anyway, 
Uh, Jeshurun means uh, the upright one, and that is what God wanted them to be, to aspire to be righteous. Verse 3, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty, and floods on dry ground, I will pour my spirit on your descendants, and my blessings on your offspring. That has got to be pain, have, that must be painful and must have been painful to many of a Jewish person over, you know, in recent history. Um, even in, when Thomas Takamata was persecuting the Jews for being Jewish and torturing them, and the Jews knew these, these verses and how they must have longed for these things. Uh, the source of spiritual life is the Holy Spirit. We used to say the Holy Ghost, but in time, the language sort of, you know, changed to people missed the meaning of it. But it is the Holy Spirit of God, God operating amongst people. Revelation 21.6, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Now, thirst means desire, an intense desire. Or a more intense desire. If you've ever been very thirsty, you, you'll not forget it. Um, Joel, of course, rings in on this. And Joel probably probably penned his prophecy before Isaiah. We're not sure, but that's how it looks like. Anyway, it, Joel writes, <clears throat> And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. That necessarily does not mean they're telling the future in prophecy. They're speaking God's word. Continuing, he says, Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And also, on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, Peter took this verse, having so much greater knowledge of Scripture than he had before he met Jesus. And Peter says, This begins at Pentecost, the birth of the church the giving of the Holy Spirit, and the significance of having the Holy Spirit and the Pentecost experience is to understand Messiah, the Christ, and to be able to articulate his gospel. Uh, That is because you, you, you had the Spirit come upon the prophets long before Pentecost, so it couldn't be just that. What is the the difference? What is the distinction between the Spirit coming upon us At Pentecost versus before Pentecost, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You shall be witness. You shall shall receive power and be my witnesses. And and that is the main thing. And so when you are preaching Christ to somebody, it's a partial fulfillment to Joel. It is a complete fulfillment to the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And we see after Pentecost, the disciples... Those, those apostles of Jesus Christ, they're stronger men coming to the faith. They're, they're, they're taking beatings for Christ, and they're preaching, saving souls. The church was, Christ was magnified, the church was multiplied. Well, Romans chapter 11, so all Israel will be saved. Yeah, not today, but it's going to happen. And it's going to be a, a but, but. Individual Jewish people, they come to Christ anytime. There's no distinction between Jew nor Gentile, Greek or, or, or barbarian, slave nor free. Anybody who thirsts has the desire to come for, to God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. These are basics. 
The basics are the foundation of all our faith. Don't let folks who think they've gotten very sophisticated move you away from the basics. They may impart very insightful things or very helpful, but there also is a tendency for them to overdo it to the point where the basics uh, get clouded. That's our strength. You don't have to be a theologian to preach Christ. And theologian in the sense that you've you know, had this formal education and you now have arrived. God said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what we need. And that is for everyone to be able to, to, to be used. It is the devil or your flesh that will tell you you're not qualified yet to share your faith. All you have to do is be a witness. That's where it begins. Here's why I believe in Jesus Christ. Um, I, I met him, and I'm learning his word. Even as a young or brand new convert, you can share why you love the Lord. Anyway, verse 4, they will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. So he's talking about Israel. This is a big deal, especially because the world has watched this happen even before 1948, they watched Israel retain authority, influencing kings and, and heads of state. Uh, it's just incredible. How many Nobel Peace Prizes have been won by Jewish people in comparison to Gentiles? It's quite significant. And it's the hand of God on them uh, as a people. Anyway, uh, not approving their rejection of him, but guarding them for the day when all Israel will be saved. Uh, again, I've already covered the only nation to be without a nation or without a land, a homeland for 2,000 years and then get their land and continue on as though it never stopped. It's just they just picked up and it's astounding. Uh, this is extended to the church, such a teaching as verse 4. They will spring up among the grass like willows by the watercourses. And reminds us of Psalm 1. And blessed is the man and he, you know, whose leaf will not fade. And he talks about the tree planted by the rivers of water. John 10, why this extends to the church. Jesus speaking, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, <clears throat> and there will be one flock and one shepherd. You know, again, the church wasn't born in the days of Christ. He was laying the foundation for it. And they didn't have the same understanding of many things that Christ said that we get, because we have the fuller picture. And that's one of the verses. They weren't thinking Gentile when he said that. We know it's Gentiles. God even said to Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. Well, verse 5, one will say, I am Yahweh's. Another will call himself by the name of Jacob or Jacob. Another will write with his hand, Yahweh, uh, Yahweh, the name, and name himself by the name of Israel. So <clears throat> there's going to be this revival Spiritual revival. Revival is something that's brought back to life. And the Jewish people, there's a day coming where they will see their Messiah, they will love him, they will love their faith, 
And they will be very outspoken about it. You remember, when the great tribulation period comes, after that period ends, Christ comes back and he sets up rule on earth. And there will be uh, millions of people who have not died, who will be alive and spared. They will survive the great tribulation period. And uh, life will go on for them for a very long time. Anyway, they will love Jesus Christ. They don't love him right now. He's an opponent of their truth. And it's unfortunate because the scriptures have so much to say about their Messiah, whose life is matched by Christ. And he is either the Christ or there's not going to be one because the, the door is closed. Being able to identify, you know, who's from Judah and who's from, I mean, you just can't now. Who's from the line of David? Uh, it has to be Christ. By, now, at this point, by process of elimination, with all the things we know about him, Zechariah 12.10, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look to me, whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for firstborn. And we look at the life of Christ and we say, man, that's a perfect match. Nobody else. I mean, he was said to be born in Bethlehem. You can't self-fulfill that prophecy. Uh, you can't say, you know what, I'm going to be born in Bethlehem unless you're God. <laughs> Son of God, as Jesus is. And the Jews will embrace their heritage as God's people, free from idolatry, free from rejection of Christ. But in the meantime... Meanwhile, back at the church, we're supposed to be doing the work, bringing the light to the world. And it takes a lot to do that. It can't get done if you don't love the Lord. But if you love the Lord, you, then you, got what, you have what you need. You have what God needs to work through you. But it's not enough to just say you love the Lord. We've all, if you've been around Christianity long enough, you've had your full of people who boast about how much they love the Lord and they live like, you just, when they come, the room goes dark when they come in a room. Oh, man. Uh, there are. Uh, I don't know if they're imposters or just uh, weak, or whatever the case is. Uh, there's no excuse to be like that, and yet there's no excuse to be too mean towards them either. It says here in verse 6, Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Redeemer of, uh, is here is a dominant Isaiah theme throughout these last uh, 27 chapters. He, he brings up the Redeemer. Titus, in the New Testament, Paul writing to Titus, he talks about these things. Paul knew this verse very well. He says, writing to Titus, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, this is what makes the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons' teaching so sinister. They say they have the same Bible and then some other stuff, too. Well, that other stuff, too, gets them to contradict what is plain speak scripture. They're, they are without excuse. And their judgment is self-inflicted. Uh, it doesn't matter that they're passionate. People are passionate about a lot of things. It doesn't automatically make it acceptable to God. Uh, people are passionate about stealing from other people. And they get elected. 
Um, anyway, <laughs> verse 14 of Titus chapter 2, uh, continue, keep it in context, our uh, glorious appearing of our great God and Savior who gave himself for us. There's no way to disconnect this. That he might redeem us from every lawless deed. You see the redemption? Isaiah says there's only one redeemer, and that is Yahweh. Paul comes along, a Jewish believer, and he says that redeemer in Isaiah 44 is the one who died for us. That's how he redeemed us. That's how he pulled it off. It's one thing to tell mankind, I love you, I'm God. It's another thing to die for them, to, take, to become sin for us. Because the Bible says, cursed is he who is hung on a tree. In judgment, that is, of course. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. We, you know, a servant is not doing God a favor. A servant is just loving back on God. Uh, you know, cover some of this coming, this coming Sunday. When you give your offerings and tithes, you're, not, you're, you're, you're giving back to God what belongs to him. You're serving God. And it's not a pitch to get you to, 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 to give. It's, it's just, you know, it's out of the abundance of the heart. The mouth speaks and the hands do when in the spirit. Of course, the flesh resists all of this. But this verse from Titus, I mean, it could not be possible for him to say that he has redeemed us from every lawless deed to purify uh, for himself his own special people. Unless with such a verse came, there is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father who is able to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Sin can't knock you out of salvation. Rejection of Christ can, which is the ultimate sin. And that first commandment, Isaiah is upholding. You shall have no other gods before me because there are no other gods. And to pretend that there are is the grandest insult a person can launch against the only true God. And the whole the world is full of this behavior. Uh, so there is more to Yahweh than Yahweh. And uh, what I mean by that is our understanding. When we come to the word Yahweh, it is, is more to him than just what happened with the Jews. It picks up in the New Testament what happens with Gentiles too. And then it continues on. We'll never know everything there is to know about God. Uh, but we will always be able to grow in the grace and the knowledge of God. So, when God says, Genesis 1.26, Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Well, the adjective our and the pronoun us is clearly plural and telling us that there's more to God than what we might initially believe. And he takes the Bible to open this up to us, to get us closer to understanding that this is not polytheism. There aren't multiple gods. There's one God. And expressed in three persons to us. Titus, or no, let's take 1 Timothy 6, 15. He who is, speaking of Christ, the blessed and only potentate. And we get our English word from that Greek word, despot. It's full authority, but not a cruel character. The king of kings and lord of lords. Well, here it says in verse 6, thus Yahweh, the king of Israel, and his redeemer, Israel's redeemer, the Yahweh of hosts, 
I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no other. That means without beginning, without ending. That's self-existence from eternity past. Now, Jesus, 2,700 years later, in direct affirmation of his own deity, because, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses will say, well, he never said he was God. Well, they they don't know their Bibles. Uh, Called himself the first and the last, which the Bible says is reserved for deity. And so you have it in Revelation 117, 28, 21, 6, and 22, 13. And it shows up elsewhere in other forms. But the criteria for being divine is self-existence and immorality, just for starters. Revelation 21, 6, I am Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. I'm it. Everything is set in me. You can only say that if you're God. No angel can say that. Mary could never say that. She would never want to say that. And if you tried to tell her to her face that she is worthy of that, she'd slap you. And, uh, or ask me to do it for her, which I would oblige. Anyhow, uh, all right, no humor or attempts thereof. So this title is claimed by God three times by Isaiah. Now, that doesn't mean the writers of the New Testament looked that up and said, well, we better say it three times in the New Testament, too. They're just going about their business sharing the gospel. It shows up three times in the New Testament, indicating the oneness in God with the Godhead. In this sense, Jesus 10, uh, Jesus 10, John 10, verse 30. I and my Father are one. Uh, So, anyway, it shows up more than three times, but in the New Testament. For emphasis. Anyway, besides me, there is no God. Well, that rules out all the religions outside the Bible, which a carnal man can't stand. What do you mean, yours is the only way? Well, can't there be one way? There are things that are one way with you. You're the one that has exclusive rights to your wallet, uh, if you're single. And... <laughs> So, uh, you know, but we understand exclusivity. We understand that. Why, why can't a sovereign God be that way? Has he no right to be God? Can there not be a true way which would therefore render all other ways false if they are in opposition? Of course. Judaism comes close now, but it falls short. Not always, but it does now. The prophet, the Jewish prophet, Jeremiah, warned. He said, you know, the day is going to come with this covenant we have with the covenant people of Yahweh. It's going to be upgraded. And when the upgrade comes, the one before the upgrade will be obsolete. There will be elements of it we retain. But overall, it's the new covenant that will overrule. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Hebrews 8, 13. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Paul said that without knowing that the temple was going to be destroyed shortly after his death by the Romans And Judaism would be chased out of Israel for 2,000 years. Uh, It's incredible that just uh, when you get into the Bible, you know, the naysayers come along and they try and they fail. But it's a serious. But anyway, let's come back because we've got so much here. 
uh, so attempts to validate other religions only militates oneself against God. And you maybe you've met people. They're so sure of themselves and they get loud and they got all these things. That, well, what about this and what about that? What about the pygmies? And like they care about the pygmies. Uh, anyway, um, Mark chapter 12. And if you're new to Christianity, you understand we, we it's not my opinion. That's why you get the cross-reference verses. So here it is in Scripture. You go look it up. You untie the link if you can, or you honor it if you cannot. Mark twelve thirty, uh, Jesus had said this. You know, listen, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the God your Father with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second commandment is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe who challenged him says this, recognizing that Jesus was spot on in his theology. Um, Actually, I got ahead of myself. No, I'll, I'll do it now and I'll come back. Mark twelve thirty two. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. This is monotheism. I don't care for all those words. I mean, sometimes they help to get to the point, but other times they just make people think they know more words than the other guy. This uh, attempt to validate other religions that militates a person from God makes them an enemy of God by default. Mark 12.30, Jesus said, he who was, well, this is actually not Mark 12.30, but uh, I'm going to read it in Matthew 12.30. There it is. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. It's two teams. You pick mine and you pick the other one. Again, we understand that kind of, of thinking. In fact, businesses, they get it very night well because if you come into certain businesses as a salesman, they make you sign a non-compete. You're either on this team or you're going to take you to court <laughs> if you use anything from this team against us. Romans 8, 7. Because the carnal mind is at enmity against God. That's war with God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Without the touch of God, you will not submit to the idea <clears throat> of his exclusivity. Ten times the exclusivity of God is emphatically declared by this one prophet. More than any others of the Old Testament, as outright as Isaiah does. In 43, 44, chapter 45, and 46, he slams this. Judaism before Christianity, and Christianity, uh, Judaism is, becomes Christianity. That's the ideal. Uh, Christianity never makes room for other religions to operate within Christianity. That's leaven. Well, we're just going to add this. We're going to mingle it. No, you're not. That's leaven. And if you try to keep it out, oh boy, you're going to make more enemies than you can shake a stick at. I had very few Christian enemies until I became pastor. Now i got stacks of them. This reoccurring dream, I go to this stadium filled with thousands of people. They're all the people who used to come to the church. No, okay, I don't have that kind of a dream, but I sometimes think that way. And it's not uh, that they're, you know, less Christians or out of love with Christ or anything. It's, it's the war we're in. This is how it is. Uh, but a pastor and a congregation cannot let leaven in. And if somebody says, well, I just want to put a few Watchtower pamphlets on the back table. You see, there, there might be some places that call themselves churches would let that kind of behavior. 
Christianity does not leave room for Christians to disagree with Christ. If you disagree with Christ, you know by default you're wrong. You might feel it now. Now, let's be fair. We can feel it like, Lord, I know you're right, but I sure feel you're wrong. <laughs> because, you know, it's, we're, we're trapped in this carnal body and our emotions will try to take over the ship and we, we have to fight those things. Christianity declares that other gods are not divine, but are products of hell's influence. They are fictitious imposters, and Isaiah hated them. And he's going to get to that if I ever get to it. And so, verse 7 now, And who can proclaim as I do? God speaking. Then let him declare it. Let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. So God says, uh, tell the future. That's a criteria of being divine. You can't, can you? Or you get one guess right and you think that is... How did the Hindu cow become sacred? How did somebody... You know what? We're not going to eat that anymore. We're going to worship it. How did that happen? How did Allah become defend? You know, the, the, the source of defense? We've got to defend our God. You've got the wrong God if you've got to defend your God. My God defends me. And if he decides not to, then he makes a martyr out of me. Uh, then the New Testament is very clear. If you're going to suffer, you suffer in righteousness, not because you're a bozo. And Peter, you know, Peter makes that very clear. Uh, how do the New Agers justify evolving into deity? Well, we are just all just the age of Aquarium, whatever they come up with, and, and they just make stuff up and demand you respect them and accept it and mingle it in. It was seeing this with uh, those who worship uh, their sexual conduct. It's not enough that you tolerate them. You have to celebrate them. And when you don't, they'll try to get you to lose your job, try to starve you to death, or hurt you in some form. But this is the work of the devil. And so when Isaiah says these things, they're, they're quite... Who can come along and say, ah, oh, that's not so? Verse 8, do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Now, of course, the New Testament applies this rock to being Christ. That was with the Jews in the Old Testament. How dare God be God and disallow anybody else's God? Who does he think he is? This is what we face. If fake gods want the respect that the true God has, then let them distinguish themselves. Let them start telling the future. And they can. Satan hates this because he can never be equal with God. He tried, but it failed. But he has managed to sell this hatred to opponents of the Scripture. And there, you know, a person can say they believe in the Bible and actively work against it. Those who are opponents of the scripture, they too hate that the only true God is the only God. As though there was some law somewhere that says, no, there are, you know, like a vending machine. You just put your coin in and you select which one you want and out it pops. Verse 9. Those who make an image, all of them are useless and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses They neither see nor know, 
<laughs> that they may be ashamed. They're their own witnesses. In other words, they sit there as a dust collector on your shelf. That's their proof of deity. That's it. They can collect dust. And they have to be carried around. Or take, or the, or the bird droppings have to be moved off of them. Yeah, they make these giant Buddhas. Somebody's got to clean that thing. This is idolatry. And, and again, the God makers find no problem with it. You can understand. You can understand why whole nations go for this. What you cannot, what you then struggle with is when they're confronted with solid Christianity that they, they, they persist. Uh, anyway, such has been the case with the missionaries. We've had many missionaries in history that have done just incredible work. Uh, and Mao, the Chinese monster, the communist Chinese, I should make to specify that, the communist Chinese monster, uh, he purged the land of Christianity. And uh, the darkness that is in China, spiritual darkness, is, is, is pretty, pretty bad. Anyway, verse 9 uh, coming back to this, worship, worshiping created things uh, creates a judgment. Uh, these are little catchy phrases that I made up myself, but they're true. If you create your God, you have created judgment for yourself. Uh, such worship was absurd, absurd and blasphemous to Isaiah. Uh, idolatry is... As modern as it is ancient, it's just, it doesn't go away because they don't make little, you know, grotesque statues that somehow is no longer idolatrous. Revelation nine, speaking about the great tribulation that is still future, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works, the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and the idols of gold. Silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And so the created elements, whether it's in the mind or in the foundry, wherever you are, uh, they're idols. If you make up things about God, and they come from demons. And God says you're worshiping demons. You think you're worshiping a righteous God, and you're not. And Paul deals with this difficult issue in Romans 3 and 4 because the question, well, what about the person who's never heard the gospel? And he deals with that very, very nobly, how, uh, you know, God's going to do the right thing. Anyway, the so-called sophisticated modern man really thinks that because they don't uh, fashion statues out of something and bow down to them, that somehow they are not idolaters, you know, Anyway, Second Chronicles 16. <clears throat> there, so what would happen is they would fashion, they would get the wood or whatever, just say, take wood, and they'd fashion it into a god, and then they believed, one form of idolatry is that the god would then inhabit the idol, and that god would be in that idol. Uh of course, you, the naysayer comes along, well, that's what the Jews did with the temple. That is not what the Jews did with the temple. Solomon makes it very clear. This temple, Lord, it's, who can make you a temple? Nobody. However, could you just meet us here, though? Well, did that mean that God could not meet the Jews anywhere else apart from the temple? Absolutely not. Uh, God could meet, he met the righteous anywhere. In fact, he abandoned the temple when they abandoned him, but not the righteous people, he continued to 
work with them to give them prophecy, to, to bless them, or to use them. Second Chronicles 16, verse 18. His Solomon, dedicating the first Jewish temple, he says, But will God indeed dwell with men on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. And in there he just continues to ex- express his desire that God would use the temple as a point of contact. Um, the, uh, especially, you know, especially an illiterate people would benefit from, from such an event uh, or uh, uh, people that weren't that well-schooled. Speaking in tongues, for example, um, you know, it's mostly the formally educated Christians that are naysayers when it comes to tongues. But what about people who really, you know, over history, not every... So, in the old churches, many of the stained glass in the churches and in the sanctuaries told the Bible story. There would be the, you know, the nativity scene and the crucifixion. Much of that was for people who were illiterate. Many of the, the peasants, you know, what are they out working out in the fields or working in, you know, wherever they were working, mines, or whatever they were doing. And those things helped them understand the preaching that was given to them. Well, there are people, uh, intellectual and non-intellectual alike, that can speak in tongues and have that form of expression of their adoration for God. Uh, I believe in all the gifts of the Spirit. I just do not believe in the unbridled display of those gifts, as is often practiced. If you are so serious about tongues, no, you can speak tongues in your home anytime you want. You just can't interrupt the service um, without, then you'll need the gift of healing. <laughs> so the ushers told me. I didn't come up with, you know, okay, coming back to this. Anyway, uh, John chapter 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the Jews understood that, the, the, those with the, the righteous ones, but they were, she didn't understand it, and he laid it out for her. Uh, Let's just move on to verse 10, since we got so much here to go. There's so much. It's shooting ducks in a bathtub. Once you come to know Christ, it's so easy to see it. But before coming to him, it's just you're in a fog. Verse 10, who would form a God or mold an image that profits him nothing? Well, it's, uh, it's God's question. Who does that? And man's answer, a lot of people. Um, the imposters. Men do not hate their ideas about God. They tend to hate God's ideas about God. And that's why they don't want to receive the revelation. Acts chapter 19, Demetrius, you know, he was saying, hey, we make our money for making these statues of Diana and other gods that we have. Because in Ephesus, there are other gods too. And uh, Paul has come here, and he's turned everything upside down for us. And they wanted to kill Paul for doing this. So they're very serious about worshiping their images. Um, Verse 11, Surely all his companions would be ashamed, and the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together, let them stand up, yet they shall fear, they shall be ashamed together. 
Again, the prophet, he hated these idols. He hated that people actually believed in these things. He's addressing primarily the Jewish people of his day who had become apostates into idolatry. Of course, it applied to the Gentiles too, but his ministry was to his people. And um, he, he says, you know, it's, it's a death, a spiritual death knell, seeing their, their utter shameless behavior. To him, it was just stupid. But to them, it was they had forsaken the true God. Uh, verse 12, and he's going to hit this a little bit. The blacksmith with the tongues works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane and marks it out with a compass and makes it like a figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man that it may remain in the house. Jeremiah rails on this too. So he's pointing out the blacksmith is a feeble being. He gets tired. He gets hungry and faint. And yet, what gives him the right to make a god? He is, I mean, how do you, part of a thing can't be, you know, greater than the thing itself kind of a thing. Verse 14, he cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak, he secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. He said, Isaiah said, you're just working with created things. The madness of an inferior understanding of a superior being. He's stunned by their senseless adoration. Verse 15, he continues about those in the God Makers Club. Uh, who require existing or created materials to create their gods. Verse 15, Then it shall be for a man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. Verse 16, He burns half of it in the fire. Hope he gets the wrong half in the fire, or the right half, uh, because the other half is, anyway... Verse 16, continuing, with this half, he eats meat. He roasts the roast and, he's, and is satisfied. He even warns himself and says, I am warm. I have seen the fire. Verse 17, and the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it, prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. And so he's just like, this, this is crazy. He didn't have that word, <laughs> that, that crazy word. Um, what do you say to this behavior? He finds it outright stupid and beneath man. Men make up gods and resent that someone points that out to them. They resent. How dare you say I made up my... Well, then show me some proof. Give me something that I can say that is distinct from human influence. The greatest element we have, well, several of them. One of them is prophecy. The other one is the nation Israel. Just the nation Israel is a living prophecy to attest to the trustworthiness of Scripture. There's nothing like it. 
Uh, and we who love the Lord, we become pro-Christ, of course. We're not going to be in the corner of idolaters and say, well, you know, they really don't mean any harm. Yeah, but the Satan behind them does. To damn their soul and anybody else, he can evangelize. And that's why our heart breaks when we have children that go to churches, learn the gospel, go out into the world, and become apostates. This is real stuff. So verse 8, They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. How do you reach them? I think we're only going to get to verse 21. I have a deep suspicion. That's as far as we're going to get. Uh, How do you reach them? They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes. That doesn't blame God. points out a process that belongs, a reality, a, a, a process that is a part of reality. So first we start with the New Testament answering these questions. Second Timothy 2. Paul says, in, speaking of how to pastor and how to be a Christian, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God, perhaps, will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. So Paul injects there, he says, listen, I don't understand it all, but I understand this much. If salvation's going to come, it's going to be because of God. But it's not going to be without our participation, too. And that's what he's saying to Timothy there in chapter 2, verse 25. God will support a willful decision of man to reject him by turning that man over to delusion. At some point, God says, fine, Romans chapter 1. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. It's not only here. It's repeated in others. John chapter 3, verse 19. Uh, this is the condemnation that has come into the world, that men love darkness because their deeds are evil. John five forty and five forty two. Isaiah will get to it again by the time we're done with Isaiah. What is left for a person... To believe after they reject the truth. Well, you say it's true to you, but it's not true to the person you're preaching. That's an unbeliever that doesn't receive Christ. Why isn't it not true? What is there about Jesus Christ to reject? I mean, I can understand rejecting churches. I can understand rejecting some Christians. But I no longer understand rejecting the message. Well, verse 19, no one, and he continues like that, and no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge, nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? So he makes he's trying to reason with them. He started out, come, let us reason. Though your sins be red as scarlet, they can be made as white as snow. And here he is, he's just trying to, how do you do this? How, how do you go to, I'm going to chop down that tree over there. That's going to make a nice God. Uh, it's the same stuff he was up against, we're up against. Otherwise, intelligent people have a complete lapse of logic and reason 
when it comes to spiritual things, if they are determined to do it their way, or to like some other person's way, more than what God has revealed. And so difficult for the God-makers, it is so difficult for the God-makers to see that their gods are just like them, created defective beings. God didn't create man defective. He became defective. Psalm 115, verse 8, those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. Yeah, because man cannot introduce original thought. There's always an influence to everything man does, which caused Vladimir Lenin very much confusion because he, he felt that man just made up God. And the question was, well, how could he make up God if he's never seen God? That goes against your own logic. And he couldn't answer that question. And the reason why man believes in God and is able to, because God has made himself available to man. But so has Satan. In verse 20, he feeds on ashes, a deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Satan the deceiver. And uh, the only protection against the deception of Satan is Jesus Christ. Revelation 12, 9 says that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. Deuteronomy eleven sixteen, 16, uh, right out the starting gate, Moses tells the people, take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And the Bible is laying all of this out throughout. It's, it's like a hologram, not a picture. You, you can cut it in half. You still have the whole picture. The window may have been reduced, but the whole thing is still there. Maybe you've gone to one of those uh, restaurants that has out on the counter a little offering to their gods. A little cup of water, a pineapple piece, a chunk of pineapple, a piece of meat. And you, you would, it's the same thing Isaiah is saying. If your God was real, I think he would have eaten that or left you a note. It doesn't matter. I mean, we do laugh at this stuff, but it's, Satan's not laughing. He's very serious. Proverbs 18.2, a fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. He doesn't want to hear what God has to say. He wants to do it the way he wants to do it. Well, Abraham came out of idolatry when everybody else did not, which means that this is doable. And to this day, there are peoples in these cultures that come out of this stuff when they hear the gospel. And that's where we come in. Well, we're going to have to do a part two next session and beat them up some more. <laughs> it's just ducks in a bathtub. But it, it, it has to be dealt with. Uh, I hope you younger Christians, I hope it's not wasted on you. Oh, I pray it's not wasted on you. Let's, let's pray. Our Father, this evening, it is so clear to we who believe. It is, we can't miss it. And yet we live in a, a world where people don't want any parts of it. Those who try to scoff politely and those who get very very zealous and animated against these truths. There's a real devil, but there's a more real God to us. And so may we um, stay the course. May we persevere and not lose hope. May you use us. May you find us vessels that you can fill and pour from us.
these truths. May it get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.